Franchising is the most misunderstood and most overlooked form of entrepreneurship. We're here to educate you and help you find the entrepreneur within. Franchising is not all about the French fries. We find that individuals who are exploring business ownership tend to have a lot of misperceptions and misunderstandings about the franchise industry. So what we want to do is help prospective business owners make confident and educated decisions before moving forward or not moving forward with a business. Welcome to Unpredicted Entrepreneur. And welcome to episode 36 of Unpredicted Entrepreneur. My name is Sarah Wasco. I am usually joined by my colleague Roxanne Rapsky, but unfortunately she is not able to join us today. We are here to bring you everything business ownership and franchising related, and it's our pleasure to uh, have our guest today be Joanna Zlinko. Did I pronounce that right, Joanna? Yeah. Awesome. Joanna Zlinko is the founder and CEO of the Closet Trading Company franchise. And we invited her today because we feel like she just had a very intriguing story that you guys would just enjoy hearing. So Joanna, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to be here. We're thrilled to hear about your story. So we'll just throw it out there. Just tell us how uh, the the closet trading company all began. Tell us how it started. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it does feel like um, it, it falls in line with the title of this podcast because it certainly was an unpredicted entrepreneurship path. I came to Santa Barbara um, for college at UCSB in 2003. And in my first week in Santa Barbara, I moved into the dorms and I went looking for a part-time job and I saw an ad for a Greek deli that was hiring downtown. So I drove downtown kind of, you know, trying to figure out this new area that I don't know very well. I'm from San Francisco originally, and I hadn't spent really any time in Santa Barbara before moving down there. So I park my car and I'm walking to my interview at the Greek deli and on my walk from the car to the deli, I pass by a hiring sign in a kind of papered over a window. And it was like a little alley. It looked like maybe a ground floor office space. Um, I wasn't picky. I just needed any job. So I called the number on the hiring sign and uh, let the woman who answered know that I was applying for whatever the job happened to be. And she said, oh, you know what? I'm actually inside right now. And she stepped on out of the shop, what was going to be the shop. And she said, I'm trying to open a vintage, a little vintage boutique here in Santa Barbara. She herself was new to town and it's just a dream that she'd always had and decided that she was going to convert this ground floor office space in this little alley into a tiny little shop. And she was going to uh, find vintage clothing at nearby thrift stores in, in Ventura County and other places near Santa Barbara and resell them there. And I had worked in similar shops in San Francisco in high school. I volunteered at a shop called the American Cancer Society Discovery Shop, which is a a charity-based thrift store that benefits, of course, the American Cancer Society. And so I had learned a little bit about um, pricing vintage goods and selecting vintage goods for resale. And so the woman, her name was Jerry, she hired me on the spot. So I never even made it to my interview at the Greek Deli. I 
followed her right inside that day and we started painting and putting together fitting rooms and getting this little space converted and ready to open. And a few weeks later, we opened the doors. We bought inventory at thrift stores. We brought it in. And sadly, the response was not what we'd hoped. There wasn't a, a ton of demand in the market for uh, vintage clothing, it seemed, or maybe we were just really new and hidden. We were in an alley between McDonald's and McDonald's dumpster. So it was a very glamorous location and a little <laughs> bit hard to find. And I felt like there was so much potential for this business. Um, in San Francisco, we had quite a few resale type stores and they were really popular with um, high school kids and college kids. So I knew that there was uh, potential for a Santa Barbara type demographic to really embrace this kind of concept. Uh, but maybe we needed to make inventory a little bit more current and contemporary. And as it happened, my boss, the original owner, her husband's job was relocated those first few months in, in Santa Barbara when the store first opened and she had to close up shop and leave town. And so that was kind of where the door opened for me. She offered me what turned out to be a, a life-changing opportunity. And that was to take over the shop by taking over the lease at the time and a little bit of debt that she had accumulated. And so that's exactly what happened. I took over and it became mine. Um, this was 2003 still. I was 18. I had no idea what I was doing, um, but my friends helped me run the shop. We right away changed it from vintage to current. So at the time it was all true religion jeans and juicy couture sweatsuits and Tylee Malibu handbags, because that's what my friends wanted. And that's what I wanted. Okay. And so, yeah. So you went from walking into an interview, basically unplanned yeah. to taking over for the owner who, after you had worked there a very short time, had to move away. Yeah. But you had gone there to go to college. So I'm yeah. curious, did this become your full-time endeavor now with this business? Um, or did you continue with your studies? While I was in college, it was a part-time endeavor. So I kept this as, as a side hustle. And I still did continue with my studies. I was uh, studying... <clears throat> A version of international relations at UCSB called Global Studies was the name of the major. And I did pursue that and graduate with my uh, bachelor's degree in 2007. And at that point, it became more of a full-time career for me. Okay. So there was a couple of funny things that you shared with me about yeah. that. You continued on, you got your degree, but you kept the store open and tell us how your how your hours were set up and then how your employees were paid. Oh yeah. So in those first few years there was not a lot of systems in place. So the employees were mostly friends of mine or friends of friends from school who could work when I was in class. So the hours had to work around whenever our availability was. So if I had class, you know, at 9:30 on Mondays and Wednesdays and the store had to open a little late that day if I couldn't find someone else to work. We just made it made it work as best we could and payroll was in effect um the the so-called employees, the friends who would be working, they would take from the till whatever they felt was appropriate for the time they spent there that day. So if they were there for let's say 4 hours, they felt like 
$20 was appropriate, they would take $20 out of the till and leave a post-it note letting me know how much they took. That is so funny. That just totally cracks me up. And I think about, you know, your explanation of, well, if I had to go to class and the store just opened a little late and now... With the internet, we're all kind of used to being able to shop 24-7. Yeah. You know? We're not fly today. (laughs) No. So that just (laughs) is funny how, you know, 2003, we're talking about not quite 20 years ago and how much has changed since then. But you had the honor system on paying them. And like you said, uh, you know, as far as no systems in place, they just took out um, what they thought they they should be paid that day, and I guess yeah. you were in agreement with whatever they decided in most cases. I guess so. <laughs> felt like it was fair. It was all fine until one of the so-called employees accidentally flushed the store keys down the toilet, and we couldn't get back into the store. Oh, no. <laughs> Always fun times as a business yeah. owner, right? <laughs> So then you got your degree and tell me a little bit more about what happened with the store from that point forward. Yeah, so I graduated in 2007. I still wasn't really sure if this was something I was going to keep long term, but I was now doing it full time. The store was starting to do really well at this point. So it was still tiny, uh, but it had become well known in the community. It, it had been voted uh best resale store in Santa Barbara a couple times in a row. It was also the only resale store in Santa Barbara, but still. <laughs> so it's easy to be the best when you're the only. <laughs> yeah, we felt excited about it still. That's, we that's made, we made a category. So there was that. There you go. Yeah. And people were starting to know us and the store had really low overhead. It turns out that it was pretty profitable. And so I was like, you know, this could actually make a living for me out of college. And so, like, you know, I'll just do it for a little bit longer, see how it goes. And then in 2008, the recession hit and it, the climate, the macro climate really took a, a more serious turn. I was seeing friends graduating, looking for jobs for months, having a really hard time finding anything, moving back home for lack of funds and lack of a place to live. And it made me take a, a long look at what I had and um, appreciate that this was something that did have long-term potential, that this was income producing, that it could potentially be replicated, that I enjoyed it, and that we were already established at that point. We were four or five years in the community. And then I began to invest myself more, more fully in the process of growing that business and of helping it realize the potential it had in Santa Barbara, but also outside of Santa Barbara. So in 2008, in fall of 2008, I opened my second location, which was in uh, Westlake Village, California, in Ventura County, just about an hour outside of Santa Barbara. I started taking some business classes. I started educating myself um, more thoroughly in the industry that I was now dedicated to. And the second location, we had a lot of pitfalls getting that off the ground, learned a lot of lessons. And ultimately, it also started growing roots in, in that community, in the kind of the Conejo Valley community. And that allowed us to finally grow our first location, which is something I'd wanted to do for a long time. So we uh, tripled our square footage and moved to a beautiful storefront on State Street, which is the main drag in Santa Barbara. We were next to the Apple store. It was just a a beautiful space. We were there for 10 years before growing again in in 2019 and relocating. Um, But that 
kind of ushered us into the next phase of the closet. That was also the time where we rebranded ourselves as the closet trading company, incorporated for the first time, and began to put systems in place that would allow us to to grow down the line. So the original name was The Closet. And then once you got Mm -hmm. that second location and started that growth, you Mm rebranded to The Closet Trading Company. And then you had two locations. So is that right? Yep, exactly. Okay. So then tell us how this has evolved now, how The Closet Trading Company became a franchise. How did you take it to the next level? Yeah. So over the following decade or so, we opened... um, a third location, then we opened a fourth location all in Southern California. And that was the fourth location opened in 2016. And around that time, we started looking at, now I'd had team members that were with me for upwards of a decade. And we were looking for opportunities for all of us to scale the business, to grow with it, to continue to stick with it. And, you know, our options were, we, um, kind of bootstrap the growth through opening more stores on our own, which, you know, realistically was at a pace of maybe one store every couple of years initially. Um, Or we look at franchising to accelerate the growth and potentially as an opportunity to bring in franchise partners with expertise that we lacked at that time. So we examined both options and ultimately determined that franchising was going to be the growth path that we were going to invest in. And at that time, my husband worked for a animal healthcare conglomerate called VCA, and VCA owns a franchise called Camp Bow Wow, a, a pet boarding franchise with upwards of 100 locations domestically. And I was talking to my husband about franchising and this and that. And he suggested, you know, what? why don't I talk to the team, to HQ at Camp Bow Wow and see if they can kind of, you know, give you a little bit of a peek behind the curtain at what a franchisor's business really looks like day to day. And they went so far above and beyond that. The Camp Bow Wow team invited us to come out, myself and a colleague of mine. We stayed with them for a few days. They gave us open access to their headquarters They allowed us to sit in on their discovery days, on meetings with franchisees and potential franchisees. They just totally welcomed us. And we learned so much about franchising and really in just less than a week with them. And they actually introduced us or someone we met on their team introduced us to a colleague of of that individual's and this colleague's name was Neil Courtney, who uh, you know is well known in franchising as the CEO of Cookie Cutters and multiple brands before that. Um, Neil is a franchise industry veteran, and he um, aligned with us, and he came on board as a as a director on our board of directors and as an advisor and mentor, and he helped us to navigate the path from small business to becoming a franchisor in addition to continuing to run and grow our daily business, our our day-to-day operations. He came out to our locations multiple times. He helped us to identify the systems that needed to be put in place and the systems that needed to be changed completely in order to adapt to a franchising model. And we spent uh, about three, three and a half years doing just that, really preparing to be the franchisor that we wanted to be before we ever welcomed our first franchisees into the system. And then uh, 
a couple of years ago, we officially launched as a franchise and then COVID hit. <laughs> and then since then, we have welcomed our first couple of franchisees into the system. That's wonderful. So a couple of things stood out yeah. to me um, that you shared, partially being all the different resources that helped you with this. You started with someone at Camp Bow Wow and you said you spent like a week with them and then um, Neil, uh, as you mentioned, well-known in franchising, gave you a lot of advice and sat on your board. And that's one thing that I really enjoy about franchising is yeah. the network of support. And yeah. those brands were not related to your brand, but they still reached out to assist you and serve you. And and I really do see franchising a lot in a lot of ways as kind of a family. I known people in the industry for the 10 years that I've been involved. And there, there is a strong support system either, you know, all within your own network, but outside of, of your own network as well. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's truly remarkable how, uh, how interconnected the franchise family is and how welcoming uh, it was Neil Courtney that put us in touch with Pinnacle. And from there, Lori Meyerson has you know, just uh, also really stepped up to advocate for us, to support us, to offer her wisdom, to offer her connections. And so many other members of the franchise family through conferences and other networking opportunities have stepped up in ways above and beyond to help us grow our business. And it's it's admirable. It's also um, makes it just an exciting industry to be a part of, because aside from you know, being a part of our core industry is in resale and in retail. Now we're also a part of this other family in franchising. And um, we are learning just in leaps and bounds from this other part of what is now our business. I love that. And I always tell people, you know, there's never a dull moment in franchising. There's always a lot to learn. Um, Joanna referenced Pinnacle. And just for those of you that may not be aware, there are companies out there that focus on franchise development and helping um, young brands evolve and grow and find their franchisees. So um, that there are several companies out there that do that. And they have partnered with Pinnacle Franchise Development and found success in that. And that kind of leads me to another thing that you had mentioned is that we get asked a lot from independent business owners about franchising their business. And mm -hmm. you spent, did you say three and a half years in yeah. conversations and really planning from the time you had the idea that you were going to take the closet trading company from an independent business to a franchise? You spent about three and a half years, right? Yeah, yeah we sure did. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's not, you know, just a quick, okay, I'm going to franchise my business. There's clearly a lot to it, a lot of time, and then a, a large monetary investment as well. Absolutely. And it, it, you know, once you begin awarding franchises, as of course you well know, you are inviting people to commit their savings, their time, their investment, um, their trust into what you're offering. And so it's our responsibility to make sure that we fine tune that offering in a way that we are truly confident in the value that we're adding for these franchise partners. This is the difference, you know, when someone says, oh, well, why don't I just do it myself? This is why, right? This is because we 
invest in all of these systems, all of this technology, all of this refinement um, before they even come to the table to make sure that we accelerate their business growth 10 times faster than we were able to when we were doing it on our own for the first time. So instead of them spending the first 9, 10, 12, 15 years growing their first few stores, they're like our first multi-unit franchisees able to operate two stores within a year. That's the difference. And that's, I think, the real value in franchise partnerships. You've figured all those things out. And while some people view a franchise as a larger investment than starting from scratch, sometimes it can be less of an investment because you bypass some of those mistakes and roadblocks and experiences that you had to gain from making those mistakes. Yes. If you could just monetize all of those mistakes, can you imagine how much money you could save? <laughs> Absolutely. As to paying a franchise royalty. Yeah. So your timing has been unique too, because you pointed out that you decided you graduated from college in 2007 and mm-hmm. then you were focusing on the business in 2008 came and the recession and you're trying to figure out how to get another location open during the recession. And then you, um, spend all this time and effort getting ready to be a franchise and guess what? COVID right after you became a franchise. So tell us how you managed the shutdown, how, you know, new business. And then all of a sudden everything changes with the pandemic. So how did you manage that? Yeah. So we, you know, we managed, um, both sides of the business, of course, as did most franchisors, we had to manage our core business, our operations and our corporate stores. And then we had to manage our franchisees who at that time was just one incoming franchisee who this family had signed the franchise agreement. I think it was February of 2020. Um, I went out to Florida to help them look at locations it, the first week of March, 2020. And then next week, the shutdowns hit. So on the franchise side of the business, I just remember having a conversation with the Antonio and Gabby, our franchisees out there. And we had a, a very frank conversation about, is the closet going to survive this pandemic? Is this wrecking ball going to, you know, is this going to take us out? And if so, what, what are our options? And we had a very open conversation about, look, if you want out, we respect that. No one could have seen this coming. And if you no longer feel comfortable pursuing this, we would be so disappointed, but we completely understand. We'll let you out of the agreement. And to their credit, with a million things that were stacked up against them, uh, not to mention that they were living in Mexico at the time and still had to immigrate here in order to do all of this, they decided to bite the bullet and go for it. And I don't know that we could possibly have dreamt up a more amazing family to have as our first franchisees. They are just everything anyone could ever ask for. And sure enough, they got that store open and they have been so successful. And they're, I mean, with every possible thing stacked against them in the face of a pandemic, immigration, all these things, they still got their store open. And it's it's been so embraced by their community in Broward County. Um, we're looking forward to them continuing to grow the TCTC brand out there. And they were actually a, a friend that client. Wonderful. Like, yeah. Just so proud to work with them. So that was really on the franchise side, um, how the pandemic kind of threw a big curveball, but ultimately, you know, was, was okay. And then on the corporate store operations side, um, our stores were all in California at the time and the lockdowns were extended here. Um, so we were shut down in some locations for a full three months. 
Um, we, as many brands did, immediately pivoted to e-commerce. So March 17th, I believe, was the first day of the shutdowns um, in Southern California. And March 19th, we launched our e-commerce experience. And um, it was it was a chaotic few days working around the clock. The team was unbelievable get, getting this figured out and getting product up there photographed and submitted and getting the site ready to shop and setting up the entire infrastructure in such a short amount of time. But everyone really came together. I think that there was a, a feeling of we're all we're all in this together. We're going to work through it and figure it out. And um, and we did. And the site went live, and it was a relative success very early on. Um, our customers were incredibly supportive and followed us online when they couldn't shop in our brick and mortar stores. Um, social media, of course, was helpful in directing our brick and mortar customers to our e-commerce experience and our um, our store managers. I mean, it was just unbelievable. They were packing up their cars with inventory from the stores they managed. We were shipping them photography equipment to their homes and they were setting up little photo studios in their living rooms during the shutdowns. And we were they were photographing inventory, submitting it. They would we would drop off bins of inventory at their house every week. I was driving all over LA with bins of inventory, swapping it out. And everyone just truly, truly all hands on deck. They they just came together and we made it work. That's amazing. I can't believe you went to e-commerce in a 48-hour period. That's just so <laughs> impressive. It really is. So um, tell us just, um, you know, how the resale industry is doing now. Um, you've obviously been doing this since basically 2003, did you say? Yeah. So 20 yeah. years. Um, yeah. What's going on in the resale industry now? So the resale industry is really having a moment. It's really beyond a moment. It's a, a trend that we're so excited to see. Um, the resale industry brings together this kind of ethical consumerism that has you know, been very popular in recent years, especially among Gen Z. And Gen Z is the number one driver of growth in our industry. Um, Gen Zers like to support businesses they see as ethically compatible with their values. They like to support businesses that are inherently sustainable, which of course shopping secondhand is. And it also marries this kind of cultural interest in celebrity culture, this aspiration, right, that we see on Instagram. There are all these designer goods that we see our favorite influencers and celebrities wearing, and um, luxury resale allows us to access those goods at prices that are more reachable for us, more accessible for us, right, for the rest of us. And so we we see these two big trends, aspiration and sustainability, really married in the success of the resale industry. I believe the latest figures are we're expecting to see the industry reach $77 billion in the next five years. It's um, on pace to grow five times faster than fast fashion. It's outpacing all traditional retail. Um, It's, you know, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, so many publications are seeing it as, as the next wave in retail. And I absolutely see that on the ground as well. More and more consumers are interested in shopping sustainably. They love the idea of being able to find the luxury labels they love for for a great deal. They love the idea of being able to sell the stuff they no longer wear. So I, I see huge things, a ton of blue sky in the resale space. And we're just so excited to be able to even be a small part of it. That's so wonderful. Very exciting uh, to hear. And you've survived 
the recession of 2008, you survived COVID. So while you're a new, newer franchise, you obviously yeah. have a long history of your business and have proven that you can weather the storms. And, um, you know, kind of to your point, um, during a recession, that's when people might be watching their dollars a little more closely. So it would be maybe um, more of a need or an interest in buying um, you know, resale clothing. So we greatly appreciate you joining us today, Joanna. It was such a pleasure to hear your story, um, learn how you became an unpredicted entrepreneur, um, went to college and then just evolved into expanding your business, um, and are now a franchise. Um, if anybody wanted to visit with you, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. If they want to um, check out our site at tctcfranchise.com and reach out to us there or on Instagram or Facebook at theclosettradingco.com or of course on LinkedIn, uh, Joanna's Linko on LinkedIn. Perfect. Well, thank you again for joining us. Um, thank you to all who have listened to um, Joanna's story today. We appreciate your um, attention to the podcast. You can download other episodes from wherever you get your podcast. Um, you can also find us on our YouTube channel, which is FranNet of Dallas, Fort Worth, and Oklahoma. We also have a new YouTube handle, which is Your Local Franchise Experts. Please look us up on LinkedIn. I am Sarah, S-A-R-A-W-A-S-K-O-W. My colleague, Roxanne Rapsky, R-A-P-S-K-E. We're very active on LinkedIn, so please connect with us there. We will look forward to seeing you again soon and have a great day. Thanks. Thanks.